welcome to the podcast for i don't know the fourth or fifth time now like this is uh we're getting on a streak here i um, always enjoy it sir thank you for having me awesome yeah so yeah i'm super stoked to uh we have a lot of different directions that this will go uh and what feels most salient is really exploring uh some of our past podcasts have been a little bit more theoretical a little bit more mm. abstract um and i think th that is great and also this one feels like yeah let's dive into the raw implementation of some of these frameworks to overcome the meaning crisis sure. what does it look like in a daily basis of inhabiting the the practices and the protocols for for confronting and facing and finding solutions if that's even a right word for the meaning crisis uh and yeah yeah and then from there we'll bounce into whatever direction feels right well that's wonderful mr nelson and i always enjoy the chance to speak with you um rather it be about beauty the game theory dynamics of conversation the work that you're doing and i think what you're getting out there on bringing the question of the meaning crisis to this realm of practice and activity and things like that that becomes really really important because it, otherwise meaning could just be the definition of a word right uh, you have to get into the use of the word, uh, and that's an entirely different ball game. So I think that's a really important step to take. Absolutely, awesome. Let's dive in. Um, yeah, so so I think you read a piece recently that I wrote about like ambition is mm. a necessity for transformation or something like that. Yes, I can't remember the exact title, but it was basically saying ambition is this forcing function for transformation and. As much as you want to feel your feelings and as much as you want to uh, like do all of those good hippie things, uh, at the end of the day, ambition, perseverance, grit, and showing up every single day no matter what are, mm. are foundations to confront the meaning crisis, to yeah. find solutions to the meaning crisis, not only individually, but collectively. And so um, to, to set the groundwork a little bit um, – this business that I have been co-creating with a couple of people mm. is basically trying to do just that. And we are running these hundred day experiences where um, we get a bunch of people in and we say, here are like five practices that are really good. Like everyone knows are good meditation, mm. cold showers, um, fasting, um, minimalism, and I think journaling and writing. Like, mm. like in, there's just these like solid foundational practice. We've talked about writing every single day yeah. in how, how per, like profound it can shift your thinking, like how your shift, uh, your thinking and your models of reality can yeah. shift just by engaging in regular, not only writing, but dialogue. Right. Um, so basically the, the essence of this thing is that, uh, everyone has done these things at one point in their life, most likely, what would it look like to do it every single day for a hundred days right. straight? And then maybe, you know, maybe down the line, do it 200 days straight, 300 right. days straight. And just like having cultivating this level of ambition and, and showing up every single day, whether you want to or not. I think this right. is something that that's, I don't want to say it's a missing link. Like it's not like mm. a secret code in, 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 in a sense. It's like, it's like everyone wants the secret, the secret key to do these things but it's like no it's uh uh it's our our philosophy is like it's simple things done repetitively over time for hundreds and hundreds mm. of days in a row and so it's like it's it no like it's really difficult because no one 
after 30 days, most people, there's a level of boredom that comes up of like, ah, is this really working? Maybe I should go do something else. Um, but, but, but actually just pushing through that and, and, and it's been really transformative for me. I've been noticing there's just like this level of exhaustion that I feel mm. on a daily basis. Um, but at the same time, like I just sit down and I write and writing happens. And then at some point energy comes back and I know that there's all of these justifications and these narratives in my mind that usually get me to stop doing the thing that needs to happen. Um, but when I just don't give myself a choice and I'm say, this is going to get done daily, whether I like it or not, then, then, uh, creativity creativity flows thinking happens um in the process of writing a book and um yeah like most of the days i don't feel creative and and there's this like amazing quote which is like uh i only write when i'm when i feel inspired and i feel inspired every single day at 8 a.m or something like that <laughs> and yeah. it's one of my one of my favorite quotes but it really uh resonates with the ethos here which is um you can't really make I, I think there's something foundational about you can't really make decisions based on like the feet the the changing feelings of your day-to-day -day life and there has to be some level of structure and showing up despite what the waves of your life are doing on a day-to-day -day basis um and ultimately uh, in doing that solutions to the meaning crisis just naturally emerge right and we're forced to confront um we're forced to shift our identity in ways that would not be possible if we didn't force ourselves to sit down uh, every single day and do the same task. And in 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 what I've noticed is in doing this, we're on day um, thirty. I'm just doing for for thirty days straight, but also meditation um, on like day like eighty or ninety, and it just like uh, at some point it it creates it gives the space for internal material to surface right whether i want the internal material to surface or not right and so maybe there's uh like really difficult things that i haven't processed maybe there's a tension in a relationship maybe there's um something in my worldview that 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 i haven't confronted yet but because i'm giving it space every single day to sit with it especially with writing i'm like oh these par there's these paradoxes that i'm that i are only being able to surface and i'm only being able to meaningfully grapple with them because i've chosen for every single day for that's half right. an hour that's right. to put my attention on on grappling with these worldviews and trying to connect these disparate worldviews um so i'd love to, i'd love to hear Excellent. i'd love to hear what's coming up for you on 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 solutions to the meaning crisis by like just like radical ambition and perseverance in in whatever whatever domain um well, that was magnificent. Uh, first off, um, I did a magic trick where I changed the color from blue to orange by ripping out the camera because I had a talk with Cadell once on the counter enlightenment where it like was all buzzy for an hour. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, so, you know, I, I wanted to bring out the complexion of the orange with the suit there. So, you know, what can I say? But uh, first off, um, you were saying a lot of extremely important things. Um, when we talk about meaning, there's a there's a few things that's kind of problematic about the word meaning. I can have meaning as in I see the meaning of the world is God's creation or the meaning of the world is emergentism or something like that. 
Um, well, if I see that the world is God's creation, that doesn't necessarily mean I feel like I have a fittedness in that meaning, right? So you have a kind of macro meaning where you say, oh, the universe has meaning because it's not going to be lost in a heat death. And you have a lot of people now who have done great work on that. You have Brendan, who's done his book on emergentism. You have the um, elegance of reality with Bobby Azura, some of the people in the meta-modern space. Dr. Henriquez has done things on like, so you have meaning in the sense of the macro, which, by the way, you need that because if you think that ultimately the universe is empty and nihilistic and they're suffering for new reason and what does it all matter, then you may have then you may have a discipline of writing every day that you find purpose and direction in, but it almost could feel selfish or like a distraction from the fact that the universe is going to end up in a giant heat death, right? So it's really important to have a macro meaning. However, just because you are able to have like a macro meaning where you say, oh, the universe is emerging to consciousness or something, that alone will not necessarily make you feel like um, you in particular know what to do with your day, right? And it is really mm -hmm. important. I think it's super important with the meaning crisis to always keep in mind. I think it's still 90% of Americans believe God exists, right? And they go to a church. They may not affiliate. You know, we always got to keep in mind when the Pew Research shows that church membership is down to 50%. That doesn't necessarily mean that only 50% call themselves religious. It may mean that they do not have official membership with a religious institution, right? So we have to keep in mind that the meaning crisis is probably not primarily for most people a result of them seeing the universe as empty and nihilistic because they say still believe in God or they still believe in Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or stuff like that, right? Now, again, I'm not saying that scientific reductionism doesn't matter. It obviously matters a lot because people get very confused by that and they don't know how to think about things. And also the mental model of reductionism is not very useful to help you understand how to deal with relationships or yourself as a human being and so on and so forth. But there's another side to the issue of meaning of which is more akin to something like direction. And what I mean by that is when you wake up in the morning, do you know what to do? Like, do you know what to do? right? Do you have a sense of what the day should hold, right? Well, one of the issues is in the past, or for a lot of people, they know what to do. They go to their nine to five, right? They go to their job, they work, they retire at 60, and so on and so forth. Well, we also realize there can be a problem with that kind of direction, because it's a kind of empty thoughtlessness that you just do because it's what your parents did and what the society says. And then one day you wake up at 45 and realize that you've never done something that you yourself chose, right? Or that you yourself value, and thus you have a mm -hmm. midlife crisis. Well, that's another kind of meaning crisis, because that's the form of meaning where you have not found meaning for your own life in terms of your own fittedness according to who you are. But that sort of crisis is not necessarily the same as the meaning of the universe being lost in a heat death and having to fix that, right? So it's really important that when we talk about, say, the meaning crisis, that there's these two different strains of thought that are in operation, right? And what you're getting at is what does it mean for a given individual to create for themselves a way of life that feels like it has something to it, if you will. There's something to it. There's a certain, oh, this is what I'm going to do. Well, here's mm -hmm. the funny thing. A lot of feeling like your life has meaning which when I'm talking about that, I'm talking almost more like individual meaning, not the meaning of the universe question. We're now working down to the particular individual because that's when you start talking about practice and business and discipline. That's where you're at, right? Your life, Ethan Nelson, Daniel Garner, that's where we're operating. The funny mm -hmm. thing is, in order to find meaning there, you have to impose things on yourself that are authoritative, right? But guess what that means? That means you have to restrict your freedom. 
But we've kind of been grown up in a zeitgeist that suggests the more freedom you have, the more self-expression you have, and therefore the more meaning you have because you can create for yourself. Here's the thing. Creativity only generates meaning if it solidifies into a kind of necessity where you must be at the desk at eight o'clock. You must take the soul cower and you must meditate. That's the little piece of the puzzle that a lot of people are like, oh, well, I, I want to be an artist. I don't know about every day painting at eight o'clock. That seems <laughs> like a little extreme, right? Well, then don't be upset if you don't have meaning because meaning comes from the feeling that you get up and know what to do because that's what you exist to do because that's what you chose to do. This is the move. You choose, I am going to write. And then you, like nature talks about taking a law and hanging it around your own neck. Like, and like you create a law, like I am going to write every day at eight. And then you say, oh, and by the way, I'm going to suffer for this. Okay. I'm willing to suffer and sacrifice for this self-imposed thing. Mm -hmm. Well, right there, we have a culture. This is another. So we have a culture that basically assumes any restriction of freedom and possibility is bad. Well, that's going to end you up in a meaning crisis because in order to get direction, you have to impose something on yourself. And then we also have a culture that thinks it's irrational to suffer for something, to put on yourself suffering um, that you decide to put yourself through because you value it. Okay? So if that is another thing that society thinks is irrational. Well, right there, you're starting to see why so many individuals struggle to have meaning in their life um, precisely because imposing something on you that restricts your freedom is frowned upon and submitting yourself to difficulty is frowned upon because why would you do that? That seems silly, right? Well, what we're starting to suggest is those are two things that you have to oppose and fight through if you're going to have individual meaning because this is basically what's going on. Um, we have found that having a direction, because here's the other thing, like meaning and direction seem very tied together. Like individual meaning seems to be tied to individual direction, meaning direction, almost like stage directions, like, oh, this is what I do at this time. I know what to do and I'm going to go through there because this is what I'm supposed to do at eight o'clock, right? Well, what we're seeing is that if your direction is simply given to you by a boss, nine to five, you may find um, meaning there. But here's the issue. It was easier to find meaning in a nine to five job if you felt like you were part of a community that it contributed to that community to do that nine to five job. And you had a lot of social capital. Right. And everyone had their nine to five and we raised our families together and so on and so forth. Well, as you get the Robert Putman bowling alone, the collapse of uh, community, the collapse of social givens and things like that and, you know, the belonging again stuff then the nine to five starts to feel really incapable of providing belonging because you can't even view it as contributing to a community that we're all part of, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the nine to five was like the boss saying you have to be at this time doing this thing that you need to do, right? If the boss can't do that anymore, that means you have to do it to yourself. That means you have to impose it on yourself. And it has to be the move here in Hegel that I think is really important is the move from viewing determinations, like things you determine that you're determined to do, like right at the desk at eight o'clock, you start to see them as necessities, a move from determination to necessity. This is necessary for me to be me. It becomes part of your very composition. You are someone who meditates at this time. You are someone who writes this way. And you start to identify with that thing you do every single day. Well, then it starts to change how you think. Then it starts to change how you operate. It's like you feel the changes in how your mind works, right? You feel the changes in your body. Well, guess what? Those changes are you. 
When you worked a nine to five at the wholesale and you felt changes in your brain and your body, those weren't you. That's where you get the alienation. You're like, I don't even want to be doing this. But you start having changes in your being and constitution that are a result of the determinations that you have chosen, that you view as necessary for you to be you and to exercise your freedom in a manner that is not chaotic. Because, and then I'll give it back to you. The key here is there has to be disciplines that makes freedoms not just an expression of possibility, but freedom as an expression of the direction you want to go in. You are free in that direction, not by having open many directions. This is the key. We've tried to find meaning and options. You find meaning and direction that you choose for yourself and then impose upon yourself as authoritative, not merely a possibility, but the thing that you're committed to. Well, that means there's risk. That means you have to face your fear. That means you could make a bad decision. You cannot have meaning if there's no risk. If there's no risk, you will not have meaning. If you cannot make a mistake or you cannot submit your life to something that then maybe you look back on and say, why did I spend my time doing that? Meditation never helped anyone. If there's no possibility of a future where you regret the decisions you made, then it cannot create meaning because you're not actually facing fear of that possible regret. And that's where you have to mm -hmm. impose discipline on yourself. That's where you have to be willing to take a stand. And that's where you have to say, yes, I'm going to spend every single day writing at eight o'clock. And yes, I know it may never get published and no one may ever read it, but I'm going to do it anyway. So meaning and risk are strongly, strongly tied together because meaning ultimately will require courage. Without courage, it is very difficult to have meaning because unless you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I am willing to take risk and I am willing to face fear, then it's difficult to feel like your meaning is anything more than a distraction. So I think what we see here is direction, meaning, courage, risk, discipline, all of these things are utterly necessary when you start talking about individual meaning, which again, the macro meaning idea like emergentism and Greg Henriquez, all of that is important because if you do all of those things and you feel like the universe is ultimately arbitrary, what does it matter? But if you have the big picture meaning and you don't have this other side of the coin, you're going to be in trouble. And that's what we're talking about here, the side of the coin that takes courage, direction, discipline, giving yourself over to something, those are all an utterly necessary part of the equation. Absolutely. Holy crap. Yeah, no, there's a lot there. There's a lot of good um, points that you just noted. Uh, yeah, one of, I'll just riff on a couple, couple of them. The th one that really fascinates me is the actuality versus potentiality one or, or the, uh, or yeah, yeah. It's like uh, exactly what you were saying where there's so many different potential things but we never choose any of them and you know it feels like it's it's even speeding up you know uh we're having more and more and more potential in our culture more and more places to go eat more and more jobs to do online more and more soft ai softwares to play around with that might not do anything the more and more people to engage with on youtube and instagram and like there's so many different places not only on the internet but but there's so many different identities that we could choose to be that it's so hard to be any of them that's right um and yeah this 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 uh, like actually actualizing something like uh i i think it's fascinating um how you frame that of the fear of regrets is is it's so hard to make decisions and to get out of this potentiality because of this fear, dreading the choice that we make yes. and the fear of, 
of this limitation being the wrong limitation, like choice of which limitation was best for us. But yet we actually can't know that. And something I've been sitting with a lot is this kind of triangle of, of um, like making a decision, executing on the decision and reflecting on the decision where it's almost like a, we try like, what is the best limitation? Then we actually limit ourselves for a certain amount of time. Then we reflect on, was that the right limitation? How would I know if it was the right limitation? And if it wasn't, is there a different limitation that I want to choose? And to me, that's like exploring the, the potentiality is like not just sitting in the space of the potentiality, but doing my best to find the most relevant limitation, but not, but never, there's like no certainty there. There's no, like, there's never this feeling of having picked the right limitation. It's always like, this is my best guess. And then I'm going to follow through on it. And then I'm going to reflect and maybe I'm going to have regret that it was the wrong one. But in that regret, I also, the potentiality opens up again for now deciding on a different limitation. If I realized that maybe it was later, um, and something I wanted to bring up as well here, um, with this ambition thing, some, one of the light bulbs that just went off as you were talking about one of our past conversations was we talked about the conditionality of beauty a lot Yes. in, in the ambition, uh, the way you were talking about it brought that back up, which is the, like the conditionality of meaning, like, like, um, yes. like choosing to limit ourselves and choosing to show up every day at 8 a.m. to write is a limitation that develops the conditions for which meaning can arise. That's right. And, 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 but still, still the word meaning to me feels a little bit ominous or like, I can't quite pinpoint it down. And I think this would be a, an interesting thing to explore. Uh, Cause you kept using the word fittedness. Yes. There's this, uh, I could like find meaning in something, but if I'm not fit to the world in some way, then there's never going to like be this full actualization of meaning. And so uh, something I really want to explore with you is not only the uh, ambition as the, as a way to develop the conditions of appreciating meaning, but then also on the topic of meaning, there's this fittedness to reality in some way. Um, and and uh, I'm going to bring in a little uh, Forrest Landry here. And it was starting to um, pop into my mind, like these these connections that were going off recently, which is he talks about this a lot, like um, subjective and objective. Like, is it idealism? Is it uh, uh, materialism? Like, like, how do we know what these these are? And basically what he claims is that the relationship between subjective and objective is more foundational than either the subjective or the object. So he's like, it's not idealism. It's not materialism. It's actually the relationship between them that is the most foundational. And when I read that, I'm still trying to figure out the implication because it feels like, all right, that is a little bit abstract, but the, the implications of that in a practical way are vast. And I think that they relate to this conversation in that the, it's like the meaning is not within me. The meaning is not within the world, but there's something about this fittedness in the relationship between me and the world, which is more foundational and which is where the meaning is and, and potentially the way to develop that, that relationship to the world is potentially through showing up every day to do something 
in which you're interacting with the world. Um, and so I'll stop, I'll stop there. And um, yeah, that was all excellent. Um, there's a few things. Um, so fittedness is a very interesting idea. That's what you get into like Aristotle, teleology and different things like, and what's curious is the word meaning, which comes from the tradition, I think with Mr. Viveki from like Victor Frankl and man's search for meaning and the notion that life is meaningless and how do we fight that and fighting reductionism can help all those different things. And all of that is very, very true. Again, if the universe feels cold and empty, that can be difficult to work with. But if the universe feels alive in like the temple of God or something, but you don't feel fitted in that temple, then you can also be alienated. And the issue is that what's, what's very important is that the topic of universal meaning is different in quality than individual meaning. Individual meaning becomes far more a matter of fittedness, whereas universal meaning becomes far more a matter of, um, of metaphysics and the structure of understanding. And as you put it, exactly right. For me, that's why there's a difference between meaning and belonging. Belonging is the individual issue. Meaning is the universal cosmic structure. And again, religions always gave both. This is what's important. Like if you take the gospel, you have like Genesis will say God exists. He made the universe, so on and so forth. But then Paul in the letters to Corinthians saying, oh, there's the body of Christ and there's priests and there's different roles and different things. And when you go through all the religions, what you see is both individual fittedness and roles and belonging in that cosmic story, but then also a cosmic story. And you have to realize religions were doing both, not just telling you that God existed and therefore the universe had meaning. It was also, say, in the New Testament, giving people roles and purposes that aligned with the cosmic story. And I'm not saying that people like Dr. Viveki or Henriquez or whatever doesn't know that. I, I'm not making those claims. I'm saying that that distinction can be lost in the word meaning itself. Right. Because mm -hmm. you can you can move back and forth between those. And, you know, some people make distinctions between meaning and purpose or, you know, the cosmic structure and the individual role in the cosmic structure. And I actually think it's just a side note. What you do see in that is the utterly necessary, I almost want to call it net skill, like I was talking with um, Emilio or people at the net the other day, of the meta language skill. The ability to move between linguistical frameworks that other people use in different ways. Because if we cannot do that, especially with the radical encounter of diversity and in different intellectual traditions that people are operating through, there's going to be a whole lot of misunderstanding, wasted time, and confusion. In the same way that if you were to interact with someone from, say, Chinese, China, you would need a Mandarin uh, translator to understand what they're saying. Increasingly, it's like people come from different intellectual cultures. Like, you know, Dr. Verveke talks about Neoplatonism. I do a lot in Hegel. Dr. Lass will do a lot in Hegel. There's psychoanalysis. You have Dr. Henriquez, who has this background. So everyone almost has different intellectual cultures. And with that brings different languages. And the ability to translate between those intellectual cultures as a meta skill or a net skill or whatever is going to be utterly, utterly, utterly necessary or you're going to just increasingly have um, wasted time, confusion, and so on. But that, that's a side note. A few more things. Um, for me, when you the funny thing is that possibility is actually a threat to meaning. We tend to think that possibility opens up meaning because you can do more things. That's not actually necessarily the case. If you have too little possibility, you can't have meaning because you feel alienated. But if you have too much possibility, you also feel alienated because it all feels like, why should I do X instead of Y? And then when if you do X, you can be saying, oh, I'm not doing Y, so I'm missing out. So there's actually a ditch on either side of the road, right? Mm. Funny enough, for most of us, 
in our current generation, meaning is more about learning to limit oneself from unlimitedness. So we don't tend to associate meaning with limits, but actually you require limitation to have meaning because without limit, you can't have definition. Definition requires limitation. I have to say that the word cat means this, not, oh, it could refer to anything because if it could refer to anything, then words are useless, right? So mm. you cannot have, and, and by the way, if limit requires definition, well, you require definition for what? Identity, meaning, place, et cetera, so forth. So what we have to understand is that in the current age where society cannot give you your limitation, you will be a blacksmith because your dad was a blacksmith. You will be a Christian because you're born in America or whatever. The limit was imposed externally. We now have to internally impose on ourselves limitation and then treat that limitation as authoritative over us. But why would we do that if it causes us to suffer? Because then we remember that we self-created and why would we do this? Well, because we choose it. Like that's, that's the move. If you want meaning, you have to impose yourself on a limit that you will follow even if it costs you, even if it's difficult. And of course that seems insane because you chose the limit and thus it's just something you imposed on yourself. So why would you subscribe to it if it costs you something? Because you choose it. And this is the Nietzschean move, really. This is what Nietzsche is kind of talking about with the child, where you create your own values and then hang a law over your, your neck and treat that law or that value as authoritative over you. That's the big move. And you see, you basically can't have meaning. You can't have belonging if you grant the language I will use in that situation unless mm -hmm. you do that, right? Mm -hmm. Now, it should be noted. There's very good reason that the world, you can put it this way. You used to have society where belonging and meaning were basically always overlaying because you could have like a Western Christian society where belonging was also providing you the meaning. So you would get meaning and belonging together. But then you say had the problem where Nazi Germany formed, where people found belonging in Nazism and we're like, well, that's bad. So we have to break down the social order and givens that create Nazism. But then if you do that, people don't have belonging because there's no social order, right? So then mm -hmm. people are like, well, how do we get meaning? Well, people can get meaning by doing individual um, things they enjoy, entrepreneurships, tasks, creative possibility. Yeah, but then they don't have belonging because they don't have shared intelligibility. So they get meaning and they don't get belonging. But in the past, it was easy to see where belonging and meaning tended to overlap a whole lot more. So it was mm -hmm. easy for us today to make the mistake that if we regain meaning, we would also get belonging. But that's not the case. And in fact, what you see is people also can find meaning, say, in conspiracies, or they can find meaning in cults or other groups that then give them belonging, but it doesn't create culture, right? So what we're seeing here is you can have a whole lot of meaning that then um, doesn't create fittedness or society, which is the problem, but then you can also have belonging that leads to Nazi Germany or conspiracies, right? So we're talking about an art form here. We're figuring out a way by which to find belonging in a manner that is actually, oh, optimal, and not going to be leading to, say, conspiracies or different things like that, and then finding a meaning in those terms as well. Well, guess what? If you want to do that, one of the great ways you check and balance yourself from falling into problematic meanings and belonging is by imposing upon yourself disciplines, facing fears, courage, developing mental models and intellectualism so you're not being pulled into problematic game theory dynamics of a cult, right? So there's this whole being development that has to be engaged in to make sure that you're balancing meaning and relation, right? Well, mm -hmm. in order to do that, that means you're also going to be having to do a whole lot of relating 
to the world, not just your own enclosed interpretation of how things are going, right? And you see, I think what Dr. Landry is talking about, um, which I, I really enjoy where when he talks about it in his eminent metaphysics, which is quite remarkable and I need to write on because whenever I visit, I'm like, oh, it, it's quite something. I really enjoy his work. Um, where the When we ask, is the object more real or the person, the thing of itself or the subjectivity is like, well, either way, the relation is more fundamental. We know there's a relation there, right? So we make the relation fundamental, right? And and what emerges in the relation is something that we would have reason to think is real uh, because the relation has to be assumed even if you're going to ask what is the thing of itself. Well, you can't even ask that unless there's a relation there. So he's arguing the relation is fundamental, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that would mean that the constituting principle of reality is relation. And that would also mean, therefore, the greatest foundation for a limitation that you impose upon yourself that then you live according to would be based on a relation, right? Like a relation to writing, a relation to what you fear. Do you face it or not, right? Because, but that right there means that you're moving out of something siloed and atomistic to you relating to other beings, right? But you also have to be an active thinker in that. So if you enter into a cult and you let the cult do your thinking for you, there's actually not a relation there. There's just a blob, right? Like if you just assume what other people are thinking and just kind of absorb that, there's actually not a relate. There, there is technically a relation, but practically there isn't a relation because you're just absorbing what is coming unto you from the bigger picture, right? So there would be a reason there to conclude that your balance between belonging and meaning is off because you're just absorbing what they're thinking, right? So how, so this is the first thing. If the if you always realize that if the relation dies, the most foundational thing is gone, then you always are paying attention to how alive that relation is. Because if it's gone, you probably don't have a balance between meaning and belonging, right? If you're just absorbing the conspiracy, you probably don't have the right balance. So you're always paying attention to, am I actively engaging in this relation or just letting the other do my thinking for me? Am I actively facing fears every single day? Am I actively submitting myself to a discipline that I don't want to submit myself to? Because if not, the relation is probably not there anymore, right? It, it may be technically there, but practically it is no longer there, right? So you start paying attention to the life and sustainability of the relation between you and other people, you and your work. Like, so for example, if you start saying, oh, I'm a writer, that's who I am, right? That's, that is not necessarily a bad thing, but there's actually a danger there because it's no longer Daniel relating to writing. You are actually just absorbed in the writing. So there's not a relation anymore. There's not a dialectic. You've lost it. You're no longer facing your fear because you are a writer, right? So then you don't have to fear writing. Well, you actually should be afraid of writing because it's it, if, you, if you're not afraid of writing, then it's not pulling something out of you, out of the depths of your subconscious. That's scary. Right. And so identifying as a writer would be an example where the relation between Daniel and writing is gone. Or if you say you say, oh, I'm a Christian. Well, that could even be dangerous because your relation to Christ could be gone because you overly identify it with it. Right. And so you're no longer like checking and balancing. Oh, am I am I Daniel L. Garner being like Christ? Because you say, oh, I'm just a Christian. Right. So what's funny is that if the relation is primary, then over identification with something is a threat to the relation. And yet that would seem to be a moment of utter intimacy, right? Oh, you've totally become a writer now. That's that's the ultimate relation, right? No, the relation is gone once you have sameness. You can only have a relation between difference, right? 
And so if the relation is primary, you can never over-identify with the things that you're doing every single day at 8 a.m., which means every single day at 8 a.m., that thing is challenging you and forcing you to fit yourself in it as opposed to lose yourself in it, which is a funny distinction that sounds really weird, but it means that if you're doing it right, there's always a little bit of uncomfortableness. There's always a little bit of distance between you and the thing. That means that you are always having to check and balance yourself in light of the thing. And the term for that, as I, because I, you know, I use Hegel so much, is dialectical. You maintain a dialectic between you and writing by never being too comfortable with calling yourself a writer or calling yourself a Christian. That keeps the relation alive precisely in the discomfort of the relation, right? But what have you done in that? You've placed a limit on how much you can identify with being a writer, and that limit then becomes the source of the infinite creativity, right? So you have to put a limit to maintain the relation, and yet the limit seems like a threat to relation, right? Because don't you have true relation if there's no limitation? Well, that's what we thought. We thought, we thought that you get true community by removing all limitation, but that's actually how you have no definition. And without definition, you can't have a dialectic and therefore it cannot perpetually challenging, challenge you in difficult ways that make you face your fears and that make you always be open to new possibilities um, because you can't ever hide behind being a writer or being a Christian. You can't ever find shelter there. You always have to every single day be challenged by those new disciplines. So I think what Mr. Landry is saying is really important. I'll pass it back to you, but there's also something really important to be said about this notion of risking things and risking regret that cannot be overstated. And actually, I have a friend named Lorenzo, and we talk a lot about financial epistemology and how one of the best ways to learn how to think is to invest in the stock market. And the reason is because you take 500 of your really hard-earned dollars and you invest in something that you've read all the papers and really have strong reason to believe is going to make you money, and then you lose all your money right? That's actually one of the most important. I, I, this would require things to elaborate on. I talk about it with Lorenzo, but things like the stock market will actually teach you how to think. And I know that's hard to get because so many people now, like, you know, they did the GameStop kind of almost gambling thing, but truly, truly taking your money and investing in something and seeing like, like putting money where your mouth is and like really, truly researching and then finding out you were wrong even though you really had good reason, or maybe you were early, or maybe your thesis was right on NVIDIA, but that worked at $180 a share, but not $250 a share. All of that way of thinking is in the ballpark of the kind of thinking that is required, financial epistemology, to, to find belonging, to find fittedness, to find individual meaning. If you don't develop that way of thinking and actually realizing that's the kind of thing you have to do, like if you invest 30 minutes every day to take cold showers, uh, that one sucks. Uh, two is difficult. And three, you have to like, oh, give up maybe the warm shower. And what if you do all the cold shadows and it does showers and it doesn't do anything for you, right? That's a risk environment. That's an investment environment, right? And so all, that way of thinking also is part of it. But I'm a big, 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 big fan of an ecology of practice per se of risk taking, like taking risks for hard-earned money or things you believe in that blow up in your face. Like writing short stories is great. You spend all your time writing a short story that you think is really good and you give it to a friend and they say it sucks. That's a really important experience because then you go, oh my gosh, I really thought this was a good story. And this person who I gave it to really did not like it. Wow. Wow. Can I trust my own sense of like judging a story as well? Can I like, what am I even doing? 
you really have to find out then if you mean it, that you want to be a, a short story writer. And it's also a revelation of how your brain presents the world to you in a manner that makes you believe that you understand it when you don't. Because you didn't see that your sentence structure sucked. You didn't see that your characters didn't make any sense. All of those are examples of ecology of practices, to use Dr. Bavakey's language, that I think are utterly, utterly, utterly necessary if we're going to talk about belonging. You must be a risk taker and you must really suffer. And then the question is, can you take risk in ways that if you lose those risks, you don't lose everything and then gradually work up to taking higher and higher risks as you learn how to manage risk emotionally and to get better at taking risk. And that's mm -hmm. then how you can start working to a place where you can where you can operate in terms of belonging. But that does require you to um, have skin in the game and possibly truly lose something. You cannot mm -hmm. have belonging. I'm using the language of belonging now to refer more to individual meaning because I, I think that would be that would be fine um you cannot have belonging uh unless you could lose something like you're not going to have it unless there's a real risk and that's part of the equation that i think comes into play so anyway those are some thoughts that come to mind amazing yeah there's there's a couple things here i'm trying to just sit in in and digest a lot of what you just said there's something here around um i was sitting with virtue as i put out this piece yesterday on um seeking validation and virtue signaling yeah and and i was like all right and i was asking myself i was like what like what is the root of like this like need for validation or this like virtue signaling and like what is the opposite of it like what is the what is the healthy alternative and one of the things that i came to or 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 one of the points that i that i heard someone make was the opposite of virtue signaling is choosing a virtue and even when it harms you yes to stand up for it yes you continue standing up for it that's right so and virtue signaling is you only choose the virtues in the context where they win that's right and you never stand up for a virtue Excellent. where in a context where it's actually negative has a negative impact on you and in this this felt very relevant to something that you I'm trying to remember the exact point because it was in, in, in the beginning of your last share, but it was something around, I think it was the suffering point. It was, I like, uh, I can be a writer and it can be fun, but at the point when the writing actually causes me suffering, will I keep going? Yes. Will I say, I, this is causing me suffering, but. I have chosen this limitation and therefore I'm going to keep, go I'm going to push through the suffering, the self-generated suffering. I could stop suffering right now and stop writing, but then I would also lose the meaning that comes with that limitation. I, and I, I think that's, that's what I was trying to really sense into is that, is that in some senses without self-imposed suffering, there's almost a greater suffering, which is like this, this meaninglessness that comes and it's like, do I want to choose my suffering in a way that gives me meaning or do I want to not choose my suffering and just feel this, this meaninglessness and this painful, painful lack of meaning in my life? And that's something I really resonated with. And, and there were a few other points in there. I'm I'm struggling to 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 remember all the different threads that you went down on the last share. Um 
Well, I'll just comment there, quickly there, on what. You, not to interrupt. Those, I was, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm I'm interrupting you. I'm I'm terrible. Um, I just wanted to comment on what you just said. The meaning crisis has emerged for good reason. It wasn't that one day people woke up and started doing things that irrationally led them into to a lack of meaning. That's a result of people saying suffering is irrational. It is bad to suffer. Therefore, I will not do the things that suffer. And then what that does is what seems like a good idea at the time ultimately leads to something bad. Like in the Christian structure, the reason like people sin is because sin is a good idea at the time. Like it seems like a good idea at the time. The issue, the claim of many religions is that what humans think is a good idea at the time ultimately is not a good idea. But that's why also there could be an emphasis on faith because you have to have faith that like self-imposing this pain now will actually help you avoid a greater pain later on. But you don't see that later on. So you, if you do the thing, you never see what would have been. So you always have to operate according to a certain faith. But that is the necessary dynamic, right? So it's really important to realize, like, and then I'll give it back to you. I just want to comment on what you said. Like, people do not end up in a situation where they don't have meaning because they, like, were irrational or stupid. Or what they did is they made an assessment of the information they were given. This sucks. And said, I'm not going to do it. Well, that's not irrational. That rationally follows unless there is a later consequence such as meaninglessness and nihilism, but you have to have faith, basically, that that would be what the outcome is. But for most of human history, there was no reason to think that because the society provided you the belonging, even if you did not have individual courage, right? But then we entered into a new historical age, basically, where that um, risk assessment was not um, adequate, was not a good direction. So uh, you basically now have to almost have a kind of faith, basically. Uh, that the suffering that you deal with now is going to come with um, the benefit of avoiding something later on that would be worse. But that's that's a kind of belief, right? You have to believe that, and you might be wrong. But the very fact that you might be wrong is actually a necessary risk for the meaning to work. You cannot avoid that risk and and get the benefit that we are so describing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um yeah, there's something there's something here around like what is a good choice to make, and even if it is suffering to me right now, is it still a good choice, and is it in service of something greater, maybe collectively? Um, that's what was coming up. But before I forget, there's there's one point that I wanted to riff on, which was the like losing yourself in the identity of something as actually being a bad thing that felt as you started talking about like identifying with this identifying with that i've also yeah i also have this frame that over identifying is not a good thing um um there's this writer i really enjoy stephen pressfield he talks a lot about ambition and creativity uh, but he basically has a thing where he says the amateur is the one that over identifies with the craft and the pro is scared out of his pants he's he's fear he's he's afraid of the creative process because because he doesn't identify with it and it, and it continually yeah brings up these there's this resistance and this suffering that comes with the creative practice and in over identifying with it you can actually like uh 
be complacent. You're like, yeah, right. I guess I'm a writer. I have that identity. Now I don't need to write anymore because I am identified as this thing. Um, and yeah, it feels really powerful to never actually like fully identify with things, but, but not in a way that doesn't involve commitment. And I think this is what I'm getting from you is like, you could go the opposite way and you could be like, I'm not going to identify with anything and therefore I'm not going to do anything and I'm not going to move in any directions or you could over identify, but there's like this middle ground, which is like, I'm not going to identify with this thing that I'm showing up for and have chosen. I'm going to show up for it on a daily basis. I'm going to suffer for it without identifying with it. And it's just this continuous choice and this is and, and this is where the virtue comes in is like I'm going to choose this virtue because like I, I want to live a virtuous life. And so there's this virtue that I'm going to commit myself to. And even in situations where it, it negatively impacts me, I'm going to continue on this virtue, but I'm never going to fully like identify with it. It's not like I am this virtue. It's like I hold this virtue dear and I will suffer for it, but it's not me. And and it, it makes me think of Verveke's, um he talks about this, uh, the divine double, I think is what he calls it, where he says, he says, it's not like, uh, in, in, and I've been finding this really fascinating because I, uh, living in, living in Boulder, Colorado, there's a lot of this kind of, uh, this, uh, self growth, uh, kind of new age, uh, communities that I find myself spending some time in. And there's this consistent, like, ah, oh, follow your like authentic self, like, like be yourself, be true, be authentic. And he basically, I don't, he, I don't know if he fully calls it bullshit, but he basically says the divine double is like, it's like this unconditioned thing, this, this unconditioned thing that we're always striving for, but we never actually reach. And he's like, he's like the, uh, he says like kind of Carl Jung's idea of, 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 I, I'm trying to remember exactly how he related it to Jung, but he was saying Jung basically, he wasn't talking about like this um, authentic self and overcoming shadow is like getting more to your authentic self. It's actually stopping you from the things that are helping you strive in this, in this relate. And I would imagine like dialectical relationship. It's like, it's like there's this thing that, that is like the more perfect version of me. And I'm always going to be striving and moving towards these values, these virtues, and this wiser version of myself. And in that relationship to this divine double is where the magic happens, not in this identification of it as like an authentic self or something like that. But it's always, there's always a, yeah, a relation, a relationship to it that that is that is in service of us developing toward greater heights of uh, towards that virtue. Absolutely. Um, the human is a being of whom is optimal when engaging in paradoxical practices, because there is something about the human subjectivity that itself is um, paradoxical. Like the moment I refer to myself, I'm gone. When I'm not referring to myself, I'm here. It's almost like a video camera that when it tries to film, like this is from um, I'm a Strange Loop by Douglas Hofstadter. When you film the screen that the camera is pointing at, there's a certain vanishing. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There's a certain vanishing that occurs. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, that yeah, infinite yeah. aggression with the video camera, right? Yeah. The moment I refer to myself, I engage in that certain um, infinite regression that occurs, eternal regression. 
But then the moment I stop and the video camera looks away from the screen, we're all good, right? So then mm. how do you identify, what does it mean to be a being that the moment you ask about your being, it's gone, right? Well, that means your being is most optimal in its becoming in moments of forgetting about being, which if you think about, sounds like exactly the moment when it's least being, but that's actually because thinking is the act of reference that makes it vanish. So you cannot can you think say, of, please. Can you say that? Can you say that one line again? That in the act of forgetting is when becoming is most optimal. When you how, forget how you your say, yeah. However, I said it. Which hopefully you know I may never say it again, but who knows? Uh, <laughs> the, the funny thing is, the human being is a being that in the act of forgetting their being is most being themselves. Because when you think about your being, you are then a creature of whom acts like your being is that with references being. No, you are a creature that is being. So if you're referencing being by asking, who am I really? What is my authentic self? The problem is you are acting as if you are a being that fittedness in, is found in referencing your being as opposed to being your being. Becoming would be the Hegelian language. And so that's what ends up happening. But the funny thing is, there's also a danger of just being without ever asking, who am I? That then is the, um, is simply causation, where you're just following determinations without ever making them your own, right? So here's the funny thing. The human being, especially in modern society where you no longer have societal givens to give you roles, you have to stop and ask, who am I? In order to determine what you are, which means to get to becoming, you have to do an act of which is anti-becoming. And this is the paradoxical situation that requires entirely new ways of holding ourselves that has never been needed before. Viveki talks about grip, right? And we've talked about conditionality and different things like that. Basically, what is being suggested yeah. is a new kind of conditionality that has not been needed before, which is the ability to identify with being the very being that vanishes in the act of asking, what am I, right? Whereas before, if say in, say pre, um, let's say in uh, the quest Christian West of the past, if you ask, who am I? It wasn't actually that you would reference yourself, you'd read the Bible, okay? So you wouldn't actually engage in that eternal regression dynamic. When you ask questions of identity, you would turn to the social order, right? Because that was the sociological givens. Today, when you ask questions about who am I, you don't turn to the sociological order because the givens are not there. You turn to yourself and ask, who am I? Well, now you're in the eternal regression problem, right? But what else are you supposed to do in order to determine who you are? So you literally must engage with the strange loop dynamic of which the natural response to the strange loop dynamic is nihilism. Because there is no you, basically. Uh, in a sense, there is no you outside the act of not asking who are you, which means you have to ask who are you to realize that here's the, the negation sublation of Hegel. Hegel would say, when you ask who am I, you discover a certain, and Zizek makes this move, you just, you find a certain groundlessness, which then can lead to nihilism unless you go, wait, I'm groundless because I literally am the creation of ground in the act of becoming according to the determinations I've chosen for myself. So the very fact you do not have an authentic self is precisely the precondition that makes it possible for you to have a created self. There is no authentic self. There's a created self of which is authentic because you chose it. If you chose it, it's authentic because you are the act of choosing. 
Here's the key. If you are the act of choosing, then what you choose is the authentic self, not because it's pre-existing, but because you chose it and you are a choosing thing. Therefore, the self you create is fitting for what you are. And the word authentic is only meaningful if it means fitting. Like what, what does the word authentic mean? It has to mean fitting. What is fitting for you? What is my authentic self? That would mean what is the unfolding of Daniel that is fitting for Daniel, right? The word authentic has no meaning unless it means fittedness, right? Okay. Well, what is the human being? A human being is a choosing entity. That is what a human is. We choose and become according to that choices. All right. So the authentic self is the chosen self, which means the authentic self is what arises in the choice, right? But here's the issue. That a choice is only a choice if it is a limitation, if it is an actual realization. You don't, choices are not options. Options are nothingness. Choice is when you take an option and you hang it around your neck like a law in Nietzsche. A choice is an option that you've limited out of its optionality into an actuality that you then impose upon yourself and thus are that. That is the chosen self. And since the human is a choosing being, that is what is fitted for you. But that means the creation of the self is in the act of the creation of the self, which means you have to commit. There is no self. There's only the committed self. Like if you don't commit to something and create yourself according to that, which has real risk, then you don't have a self. So then you go, oh, so this is what we're doing today. We're basically saying, I'll choose to do whatever is my authentic self. We then look for an authentic self that's not there, and therefore we never choose to create the authentic self per se. That is accordant with the choice. But if you say, no, I'm going to choose something, and you do that thing for 10 years, and you become the individual that simply forgets themselves in the act of writing, one day you go, oh, I guess I'm a writer, and then immediately forget it and go back to your task, right? <laughs> but, you, but that means the commitment comes before the identity. The commitment comes yeah, before the identity. Yes. We're trying to figure out our identity before we commit. And that means, and, and it's the C.S. Lewis thing. If you put first things first, you get second things also. If you put second things first, you lose both. We are looking for an identity because we're afraid we're going to commit to something wrong. We're afraid of making a bad commitment. So we want to determine our true self before we make that commitment when actually you have to make the commitment to give rise to that self. Now, that doesn't mean you can't research and have a good investment strategy, right? If you say, hey, I'm not really good at math or something, right? Well, then you're not going to say maybe be a math teacher, right? There is research in stock picks, right? There is researching different things. You can take personality tests and determine dispositions and things you like and so on and so forth. But no matter how many personality tests you make, no matter how many you take and whatever you do, Personality tests, just like just like in David Hume, constant conjunction never gets you to natural law. You can never get from the, the billiard ball hitting another to the, the to the natural law. You can never get from personality tests to a person. A personality test can only be a guide that is as valuable to the degree that it leads to a commitment that then arises to you creating a self that is that commitment. And what we tried to do is have our personality tests tell us how we should commit and what we should commit to when they never will, because we're afraid of making a bad choice. You have to make a commitment. Yes. Look, you say, hey, I naturally write. Hey, I naturally like animals. Hey, I naturally like unloading trucks. Okay, commit. 
Commit to raising horses. Commit to unloading trucks. Commit to the point where it becomes difficult because then you can find out that you're the kind of being who can rise to the difficulty and the occasion of driving trucks when it's difficult. And now you feel like I actually can do this. You're not going to have meaning until you feel like you can do something and you're able to do something beyond what you previously thought. That gets into Mr. Ebert's talk on limits and how limits are what unlock the unlimited. You will not feel like you have meaning unless you are able to transcend what you previously thought was possible. And that will require habits and disciplines. You're not going to be able to transcend what you previously thought was possible unless you do the daily practices to so transcend, right? And that's where you have to have the daily habits. Habits are very important. Matt was talking about that at the Meaning Code. James K. A. Smith has you, you know, you are what you love. What you love forms your habits and your habits are who you are, right? Well, habits are disciplines. Habits are limitations. Habits are identity. The, the character comes from the habit. But no matter how many personality tests you take, personality tests will never get you to habits, Habits come from choices. And from the very choices there then comes the commitment that then creates you. And that is what you are. You are a choosing thing. Humans are meant to choose determinations that they make necessary so that they are themselves. And you will not find freedom unless you have that determination of which is found in the raw, raw, committed choice. So I think by looking, by looking for the authentic self before we make the choice, we end up with no self. And I think that's a lot of the mistake that's being made. It's phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. I really, yeah, I really appreciate that thread of eventually the identity arises, but it's not a result of, of identifying with it, but doing the things which give rise to it. And then maybe you can like tell someone that you're this identity, but like what, like, but then because, because the habits gave rise to the identity in the first place, the identity is not very sticky. Exactly. Because what you're focused on is the habits and not the identity. Exactly. Whereas like trying to be authentic and find the identity from what I get, it's like, that is like trying to like, attach onto identity and like make it sticky whereas the habits is like the habits are what stays and the identities come and go based on those habits that's right um yeah there was a there was a lot there was a lot um there and i i continually like as you're speaking i'll go down all these different threads and then i'll lose them um <laughs> but a lot of different threads i'm going down right now one one that came up was fitness when you say my authentic self isn't like this identity it's that which is daniel being fitted to, to danieling or ethan yeah. being fitted to ethaning or or whatever that process is of becoming and being fitted to yeah all right all right all right it's all coming back to me now so so the i'm very curious to dialogue with you around what is this fitness like what is being fit to what and and yeah there's this sense of all right you were saying the authentic self is not just like sensing into myself and trying to like 
form an identity and like use personality tests to find my identity, but rather in, 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 in this is where, um, yeah, what, what I'm curious about is what it, what does it look like to sense into that? Right. There's a, to, I imagine you said like, yeah, you still do research. You still do financial epistemology thing. You still are like getting some data on which stock to choose. You're not just like going random. And right. so, and so there's this, there's this choice, but then there's also in order to make a good choice, I think that was what I was really honing in on is what does it look like to make a good choice that is fit? Or what is this, you could say meta skill of sensing into myself in noticing where the fittedness is. And then rather than staying in the potentiality, there's actually a noticing of there's fittedness here. And now it would be a waste of time to continue searching because I've had this felt experience of fittedness. And now this is where the choice comes in. And it's almost like um, I, I, I imagine it as like, yeah, like Vervek, he has this thing called the introspection trap mm -hmm. um which i think you will really appreciate if you haven't heard it already but he basically says introspection increases agency to a certain degree and then it hits a peak and if you keep introspecting agency decreases again and so i think this fits in here as well because it's like sensing into your system for fittedness increases like this 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 relevance realization in Verveki's words again, like this this um and then once once it's found, it's like all right, now that that process is no longer valuable because something has been found and now let's go in that direction um and let's choose it and let's limit that thing. And the one last the one last thing that I'll add is um also kind of Vervekian um uh kind of way of thinking, but it's like a or or at least what I, I have got from his work is is there's this limitation you can never have I and we've talked about this, you you can never have all of the options, you can never do all of the things, you can never write all of the things. There's this inf infinite Thing that's the limitation is bringing the infinite into the finite um and so but but in before i was thinking that in terms of like all right there's there's this infinite thing and now i'm gonna like choose one thing but now my my thinking i feel has complexified a little bit and that it's like it's not just that i'm choosing this one thing but it's that there's relationships between all of these different things and i have to choose what is what is this optimal relationship between these things right because uh it's uh, kind of like the, the paperclip maximizer thing, right? It's like a, the goal is not just to find one thing that's fit, I imagine, and to go only towards that for the rest of your life, right? Because then there's all these other aspects of your life where that also need your attention. So the fittedness is like, I'm going to choose this limitation and I'm only going to pursue it in so far that it, that I don't go too far and that the relationship between that commitment and the other commitments. And so, yeah, there's like this, this, this sensing between if I only write all day, every day, 
all right, well, I still got to pay rent. I still have relationships. I still have community, all of these things. Right. Um, so I'm going to choose to commit to writing and I'm also committing to community and I'm also committing to X, Y, Z. Um, curious to hear you riff on that. Well, that was all very, very good and very, very important uh, because what you were getting at is the million dollar question of how you determine uh, the phenomenology of a reason to think that this is something you should commit to. What is the experience of something that you, there is a high probability that you should commit to versus not. Now, this is another reason why financial epistemology is, I think, very important. Um, some people can talk like, for example, as if when you find the thing you're supposed to do, it's obvious and that's the thing you should do, right? In the same way that they'll talk about when you meet the one you're supposed to marry, there's a ray of light that comes down in you. Oh, that's the one. It's so obvious, right? Um, I think this way of thinking could be dangerous, actually, because then you do not develop a strategy by which you can actually successfully employ different possibilities in a manner that then you can risk assess so that you can determine the best option. So, for example... In, um, if I'm to use the stock market example, it's generally considered not good advice to take your entire portfolio and invest in a, sing in a single company. You say, well, I think NVIDIA is going to the moon. I'm going to put all my money on it and you lose 30%. There is diversification that people will say, right? However, there is also a point where diversification, as Charlie Munger puts it, becomes um, a worsification. Well, you have so many stocks that you can't make any money. Yeah, you don't lose anything, but you don't gain anything either, right? So for him, you want maybe, I, I don't know how many Charles Munger, Munger has, but he'll, like, he'll have like Alibaba at one point, Coca-Cola, different things. So he may have like 10, 10 stocks, right? And he breaks up his money there. He doesn't have a thousand. You see some portfolio managers that have like thousands of options and they don't lose any money, but they also don't make any money, right? So the question becomes the following. If you look at your life, Ask yourself, are there five things, maybe there are six or five things, that the very experience of time is different when you do them? Like you'll suddenly notice three hours go by. Or you do them and you actually feel more like, say, energized throughout the rest of the day, right? Or you feel like your mind is structured in a manner that makes you more discerning so you don't end up in drama situations, okay? Say in relationships, right? Maybe it's five things. Maybe it's writing, meditation, uh, taking walks, unloading trucks, working on a farm or something, right? These five things, right? And you notice that they're different. Okay, if there is a different phenomenological experience of these five things, then there would be reason to think that these five things have a higher likelihood of being fitting for you than, say, when you uh, worked at the gas station, when you were doing truck driving, when you were doing other things, right? Because that experience of time was drudgery. Also, you didn't feel like you were good at them. You know, it's hard to feel like you have meaning at something that you're not good at. But you know what's funny? Good also can be problematic because there's a lot of people that are talented at something and precisely because they're talented at it, they don't find any meaning in it because they could just do it, right? So there's this funny thing where actually it has to feel like you're good at it, but, but there's also room to grow. It's not merely excellence, but the possibility of possibility in the in sense of the excellence of the ability, right? Where you can work it every day and get somewhere with it, right? Mm. Well, ask yourself in your life. Are there, say, five things that you go, oh, okay, I actually feel like these are things I'm good at, but I could actually get better at, and there would be value at getting better at these things. For example, I would be able to make money that I could then take care of relationship, take care of kids, take care of my family, have the ability to change the world because money can change the world. Money has a certain power to it, right? You say, yes, it's this thing. You say, oh, in this other thing, the more I do it, the better I am as a, at avoiding drama. Stress kills. 
Personal drama kills. It makes life worse. If there's something you can do, say writing every day that helps you structure your thoughts so you don't misinterpret people's intentions in a manner that lead into drama, there would be value there, right? So you go through these different things and you say, okay, out of those five, I'm going to allot two hours or one hour every single day to those things. And I'm going to seriously commit to all of those for say a few months or two years or something, right? One of the things that really, really gets us also in trouble when we think about finding fittedness is we think all or nothing. I do it for the rest of my life or I do it for one day and if it doesn't work, I stop forever. There's a whole lot of like middle ranges, like six months, five months, one year. Our minds don't think in terms of like, so for example, when you're talking about developing habits, it takes longer than a month to develop a habit. It doesn't take a year. It takes like five months to develop a habit. But our brain is so like messed up. We tend to think that habits like, oh, I'll never be a writer would take 10 years. No, it's, it will take like four. It'll take like four, <laughs> not 10, not 20. It's like these really unsexy numbers, like four or four in three months or something, right? But that's not how our brain thinks. But when you, like, so for example, in a portfolio, you say, I'm going to hold NVIDIA until I lose 20%. You have like a stop loss, right? And if NVIDIA does not return at 20%, then I stop doing it, right? So maybe you do these five things for six months. And after six months, you start to notice that, say, writing and working, say, outdoors as a park ranger are the two that seem to actually have some sort of special ump to them, as opposed to the, uh, of the other ones that you were doing. Well, then you take away time from the other, five, other three and give more time to those two. Now, you don't entirely drop the other three. You just start allocating less time to them, right? Because you're not 100% sure yet that these two are the two that you're going to really commit to. But you start moving your time around relative to the transformation of the quality of the experience, which means you have to pay attention to that, right? And over the months, you start determining of those things, what were the ones that not only give you that different experience and also create value, but that you also see real growth in, right? And you feel growth in that you can share with others and you also have a feeling of excellence. Well, then you start allocating. So people in the stock market, they'll say, well, I'm really good at small cap, but I'm not really good at um, cyclicals or tech stocks, right? And some people go, oh, I'm really good at long investment, but I'm not good at shorting, right? Oh, I'm really good at option chains with puts and, and calls, but I'm not really good um, outside of that or bond market or equity. There's all this variance that people come to pay attention to what they're good at and then they start to focus on that. I really do think that investment as a metaphoric structure for thinking this is really, really important. But to learn how to do the market, you have to what? You have to take risk from the very start. This is the key. You can't even begin to learn how to do investment unless you start with risk, right? There has to be real risk. And I don't actually think the simulators and stuff work very well because you don't have the emotional component. You don't learn to do this. You don't learn how to invest until you have that feeling in your stomach that's really, really sick because you lost 20% because they miss earnings, right? You don't get that feeling of what it's like to pursue a passion until your mom's telling you you're wasting your life, right? Then you have to have the real emotional encounter, and so like what, but there has to be risk from the start, right? So it goes with homing in on that thing. A lot of people want to home in on that thing they should do and then take risk. No, 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 no. The entire process of homing in has to involve the risk. Now, the first six you start off with, you can just base that on your life experience. But by the time you get to be 20, 25, 26, 27, 
you will have naturally gone through life experiences that will probably give you a pretty good phenomenological indication of what maybe four good bets are, right? Of things that you should allocate more time on. Start there. And then as you start on those, maybe you have new experiences, but here's the, here's the key. It is not actually necessarily a good in of itself to have new experiences in a vacuum, right? Because what is the probability that you will have a new experience that falls within the range of what is something you should home in on, right? Very, very low. But here's the thing. If you home in on those four or five or whatever, you actually will have new experiences while you do those five. And the likelihood that those new experiences actually could be new things you should invest in is much higher because of the starting position already being something different in quality that you engaged in, right? So you begin a process of experimentation, but this is the key. The experimentation is informed by a close attention to the phenomenological experience of the thing, and it has risk from the start, and you are actively allocating as you undergo and start to determine what you can be good at and what you cannot be good at and so on and so forth. So let me make an example. I had a photography business for a very long time, Frozen Glory Photography. I took very long walks in the woods. I enjoyed nature and, and things like that. Well, so I did a lot of photography. I started writing science fiction novels when I was like um, 10 or whatever. Um, I also enjoyed business. I did the Frozen Glory photography and, and different stuff. I also sang in choir. I always liked music. And, um, and, and, and those would be some good examples. Okay. Well, I don't really do as much photography at all like I used to. Why? Because even though I had a successful business and I did weddings and did all sorts of things, it became clear to me that there was a kind of diminishing return, as Viveki is talking about. It was not something that I really, really wanted to pour any more time into. And also, I didn't care to learn the new cameras. I enjoyed more doing the artistic photography, but that's not what they wanted for weddings. I wasn't going to pay the bills. And in fact, there seemed to be certain limitations to the photography image that I could, that really felt like it limited what I wanted to create. Well, in writing, that was not so much the case, actually. And so I started to allocate more time toward writing, all right? Also, I didn't take as many walks outdoors because I couldn't be taking eight-hour walks in nature and also have time to do the laptop or different things, right? Well, also, too, as I say, went into university or I started doing different fields, it became very clear to me that directly working in a university would take away from the – I liked the, uh, the academic setting – but I also did not like not having time to work on the things I wanted to work on because you were stuck in bureaucracy. And also it felt like there was a lot of competition and silliness that went on in the college place. So I was like, well, I don't want to really do that. I don't want to be part of that, even though I like the environment, right? Um, and, and, and so gradually what you start to do is through time and experience and paying attention to how you naturally interacted with something, you know, everyone's like, oh, you should be a photographer, you should do, you know, you should do choir and different things like that. Well, yeah, I like doing it, but through time, the phenomenological experience changed and sort of refined to the place where you go, well, the, the thing you really, really should focus on is more so writing, um, for me in particular, and doing jobs that are more blue collar so that you can do that writing. Do you see how it refined through time, right? Mm -hmm. And that became clear through paying attention to the phenomenological experience of doing those things through time, right? I also, you know, I also mm -hmm. helped run Unoya with Bernard and Evan, and that was an art gallery venue and, and really enjoyed that. But, and that was also something that I kind of still do in a, a way with the venue, but it's not the prime thing I do. It's like the secondary thing I do, right? But I have to, to pay the bills. And if I don't pay the bills, I can't do the writing. So you gradually have 
a process. Now, now here's the thing. I also did like Chinese weapon fighting and different things, but I never was like, oh, I want to be a black belt at that, but I did enjoy it. So I don't really do much of that, right? Even though that was something I really, really enjoyed and still enjoyed mm -hmm. to do, right? So what you see here, now I could, maybe I could be a NASCAR driver. I don't know, but I have nothing in my experience that would suggest driving a NASCAR or driving cars or something would be one of the things that I find meaning in. There's nowhere in my life story that's there. I could wonder and go, what if, you know, what if I could be a NASCAR driver or a pilot or a gardener or whatever, but I have no basis for that in my life story, right? And if I wonder those possibilities, all I do is never commit to anything because I'm always trying something new that I haven't tried yet, right? Well, what if you traveled more? Maybe you'd have new experiences. Well, guess what? Traveling costs money and there's always places you don't see. Travel it's not that traveling is bad, but you have to impose certain limitations on yourself so you become good at the thing that you have decided based on this experimentation that you are fitted for, right? Mm -hmm. And then you commit to that because if you don't commit to it and you're always trying new things, you end up doing nothing because you're always trying. You don't do things you try. Uh, you do things you commit to, and the trying is in the commitment. I'm saying not. I'm not saying don't try that. But what we have is a culture of just trying, and trying it means basically tasting, like tasting different wines, but never buying a bottle. Right? Make sure when you try something, it involves risk and could cost you something. You really don't try something unless you risk something, and so. Through this process of a life and experimentation, you start to determine fittedness and then you commit to that as opposed to wonder, what else could I do? What else could I try? Could I have a different job than a wedding venue? Could I have like a different thing? Yeah, but, I, but I'm good at the wedding venue thing. I mean, no one has told me I suck yet, so I have reason to think I'm good at it. And also it just makes sense to me when I do it. Like there's a logic that just kind of flows between those setting up chairs, talking with people, working on the different, there's just a logic to it. Likewise, when we do mm -hmm. ideas or the story, there's a logic that just is apparent to me. I'm not saying that it's magical. I, I'm not saying other people don't have it, but there's a certain fittedness that you feel in the doing of it, um, that you stopped having in photography, that you stopped having in wushu, that you stopped having in other things, and so you don't, here's the key. So I don't sit around and going, oh, maybe I should go back to photography. Oh, maybe I should have another art gallery venue and performance. I don't do that because I trust my assessment of the phenomenological fittedness and commit to what is evident now. If you don't do that commitment, then you're never going to go anywhere. You're always going to be wondering about the past or you're wondering about new possibilities of being a NASCAR driver or, or working somewhere else or doing something else. All of that keeps you from the commitment which require, which leads to the choice that is necessary for you to be because the only self is the chosen self, because the authentic self is the choosing self, because the human is the choosing, is the commitment to those things. So that would be, from my own biography, a kind of way that that works out with a gradual allocation of time and resources relative to those shifting phenomenological experiences and the quality of those experiences. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that was that was very well put. Something as you were speaking, I was sitting with this this sense of like, all right, what 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 is that choice? How do you tell at the end of the day whether it was a good choice or maybe in retrospect? So we talked a lot. So you you gave a lot of really um, spot on frames on this phenomenological experience 
of fittedness in in your life and then there's also this other side of it which is in retrospect or in the moment what what are the markers that that it that it is the right choice you said maybe you have 5 and then you're doing those 5 and then you realize oh actually two of these are the most fit and the other three are slightly less fit so i'm going to put more time into those two and what i was sitting with was like this this you you put it as you know you lose time for three you do something for 3 hours and lose track of time and yeah that's that's really excited uh, it feels really spot on and i also and i think the reverse of that the like that but the opposite definition of like um the diff the things that when they become super difficult you you're able to weather through the difficulty and there's enough meaning there that the meaning itself trumps the the pain of the difficulty so i almost view it as like there's so many things that i know when i've started when it got really painful and really hard, there was not enough meaning. It's like, I almost see it as like two, like a, like a bar graph or something. Right. And it's like the meaning wasn't as strong as the difficulty was bad that, that I couldn't get through. So it's almost like, as you were speaking, this friend that was coming to me, was like, is the degree of the meaning equal to or greater than the, the difficulty of the pain? And and uh, there was a couple uh, domains that I wanted to to explore this in, or or that like came to me. And one was, one was um, like in my personal life, I like tried to be a developer at one point and learned computer programming and learned all these languages. And then at some point, I was like, I'm stuck on this one bug for two days, and I want to give up, and I hate this, and I don't see what the point is, right? And it's like, and it's. I couldn't see what the point is. And I never got to the the place where I'm like, I can see the deep purpose of why I'm doing this. There was never that. And so as soon as it got difficult, it's like, I'm, I don't want to spend my life in this dialectic with programming. Um, but one that I feel is even more interesting is relationships. Um, and so you talk about how, like, there's this idea in our culture that you'll find the one person. Right. And they will be the perfect match for you and you will live happily ever after. And it actually feels like, like, uh, that's like a terrible frame because it's, it's actually like, I feel there are some people that are more right for you than others. And to me, it's not whether like, it's not like, to me, it's like, what are the, what are the people that when you get in arguments you can see that it's worth fighting for in that argument and you're committed to weathering through the argument and facing the difficulty of the tension of the that you actually get through it and that and i as a yeah as you were talking that's what came up and it felt like there was a lot of insights happening in my life where i'm like oh all these people that i've dated it's like oh it's because i i realized that when it got difficult I didn't, there wasn't enough meaning to actually weather the difficulty and that with some people, the, the, the ability to weather the difficulty is higher. Um, but I thought that was an interesting frame on like actually bringing this, um, from the domain of like life purpose into like the domain of like finding a, finding a partner. I feel like I wanted to make that connection because it felt like there was, there's a lot of similarities there and, 
choosing what to commit myself to um, in a sort of like what is my life's work versus choosing to commit myself to a person or even like friendships. Like what are the friends where it feels meaningful enough to be in this friendship or this or or like this um, philosophical friendship or this 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 uh like there the, there's enough meaning in the dialogue that when there's when there's a dissonance of worldviews you can actually weather that and i think yeah i think it's really interesting to explore the overlap of what you were talking about in all these different um domains excellent um you know a few things that come to mind one of the issues with the entire conversation about meaning is that we tend to talk about meaning as something one finds. And I think that's the overlay with relationships. We, we talk about relationships like there are things you find. Like you find them or you don't, right? There is truth to this. But there's also something to be said. Like we have to think in terms of strategy and design. Like design thinking as opposed to just thinking for meaning or strategy. Now, it's hard to use the word strategy because that sounds like plotting, right? But everything I said about the portfolio is a kind of design thinking where you're saying, okay, these are based on unique phenomenological experiences. Reason to think that one of these five is perhaps something that I should really, really, truly commit to to the point of like almost obsession, but in a good way, like a ha habiting or maybe two of them. So how do I design my day so I can give the experimentation space for the experimentation to determine where the likelihood of the investment will be most most uh, greatest return, right? Well, that's all kind of design thinking, right? Like you are thinking in terms of design. You're not sitting, you're not merely sitting back and saying, oh, I want meaning, therefore I'm going to go find meaning and look for it. No, you have to be active in the creation of meaning. Now, there are something to be said about the five things being something you stumbled upon without realizing you'd stumbled them upon simply as a function for living for 20 years. If you live for long enough time, it is basically inevitable that you will have a certain set of experiences or number of experiences that will give you material to work with. This is the key. We have to look at the material of our life as things to work with not a kind of pile of rubble. If we dig through, we're going to find the diamond because that's how we talk, right? Mm -hmm. We have to think about how to design the material we have to help work it into something that we will then fit in, right? So it also goes with relationships, right? So for example, there's a lot of people that say want relationships and proceed to do nothing to put themselves in the place where they can encounter people they can relate with, right? Well, that's a problem. Like, so for example, there's a few things. If you say, oh, I'm like some, I am someone who enjoys, um, I really find deep relationships in sports, right? Okay, and yet you proceed to put yourself in spaces to find a partner where people don't do sports, right? Like you would want to go to the places where people tend to do those sorts of things, right? Now that's a simple example. Like you say, oh, I really like deep conversation. Okay, are you hanging out in the places where people have deep conversations? If the answer is no, then you are not creating the conditions to increase the likelihood of encountering a relationship that would probably be one you would want to work through difficulty as opposed to see no meaning in working through the difficulty, right? So what are we saying here? We are saying that there is a active but also not entirely controlling dimension. You're not going in and like forcing someone to relate to you, but you're putting yourself in the place 
where then the material that you have identified as something that you resonate with can arise to something as opposed to just kind of occur like magic. We talk about meaning as if it appears like magic. We talk about relationships as if they appear like magic. They just kind of appear, right? Well, it's it's more like does a it, does a sunset. I'll use the example from earlier conversations. Do sunsets appear like magic? They feel like magic when you encounter them, but you also know that they tend to occur in the last 10 minutes of every single day. And if you want to see them, you need to go to a high point where you're not going to be blocked by buildings, right? Sunsets are magic in the experience, but the experiencing of sunsets is not mysterious. It is quite clear what the conditions are so that you can see the sunset, right? It's actually quite simple, similar with meaning, it's quite similar with, say, love and relationships. They are magic when you have them, but how you arise to them actually has a certain design thinking behind it, right? So another point, we talked about the, the passage of time being a good phenomenological indication. What is something that you would be willing to do if you're not paid for it? That also tends to be a good indication. You say, oh, I'd do this even if I wasn't paid for it. That's a good, that's a good, that would be a good indication of something that you probably should invest time in to see over six months if it flourishes. Another one is what is something that when you do, you feel like you're doing something beautiful? The word meaningful can be tricky, but ask yourself, is it beautiful to you? Because if you ask if it's meaningful, most people say, yeah, it's meaningful. Okay, but is it beautiful to you? Beautiful can be a little more robust of a question. And mm -hmm. if you say yes, well, that would probably be something you should invest in. Okay, you're talking about people. If you're talking about relationships, what is it when you talk with someone that it feels like there's almost like a... When you talk with them, they get what you're saying, even if you don't finish your sentences. Like you say things and actually it doesn't make sense what you said if you pay attention to actually the words and yet they still get it as if you said it clearly. That tends to be an indication of a shared intelligibility and a shared implicit background that tends to be very important. It tends to make relatability more smooth, right? Because they just kind of get you. Right. Likewise, if they're able to identify, like if um, if they just have a sense of what you do in your day without you even explaining it, or they have a similar kind of rhythm to the day, that also tends to be an indication of a shared implicit background without it having to be articulated. Of course, also the passage of time, just like that, like you talk to them and three hours go by, that also tends to be an important uh, characteristic. Also. Um, another thing is if you're talking with someone, the ability for them to move between the personal in particular and the meta in general and back and forth and back and forth to look at it objectively and then looking at it personally, that also tends to be a very important skill where they're not always in the unemotional objective, but they're also not just in the emotional realm. Um, is it someone that it, if I say to you, is the person emotional or emotionally intelligent if you get that distinction without me having to explain it, then that tends to be someone that falls, that's unique, right? That has a certain relatability. If I say, if I ask, is this person someone who can talk about deep matters and you instantly say yes without thinking about it, that tends to be a phenomenological indication. If you have to think about it, then you might, then it's going into a different realm. But if it's just instantaneous, that tends to be a good thing, right? So there are these different phenomenological tests that one engages with, that if these tests are passed, then you go about the design thinking to create the conditions so that they can then flourish more, right? Mm -hmm. The meaning is not going to, meaning does not appear like magic just because you want it. 
Relationships do not appear like magic just because you want them. You have to create the conditions of which you have reason to think you can create based on these unique phenomenological experiences. But the phenomenological experiences are not a guarantee. They are an indication of a likely possibility or of a higher likelihood of a return on investment per se if you create the conditions. But then you have to put yourself in those conditions and commit and take on mm -hmm. risk and be vulnerable. And you might ultimately be wrong. Also, you might ultimately be wrong, but that's necessary for meaning. If there's no possibility of being wrong, there cannot be meaning. Meaning mm -hmm. requires the possibility of being wrong, which is precisely why it was meaningful, because it could have not been. That is a necessary dimension, right? That's why love mm -hmm. can be meaningful, precisely because love can be hard. If love can't be hard, then love can't be meaningful. There has to be the possibility of love being hard. Love has to overcome for it to be something more than mere liking. Right. And so here's the key. The very difficulty of meaning is the possibility of meaning. The very possibility of losing meaning or regretting the things that you thought would be meaningful are the precondition for the possibility of the thing being meaningful. So the question becomes, what is the best way to go about design and conditioning and strategy, if you will, to have the highest possibility of the quote unquote return on the portfolio, on the investment? And that requires a deep phenomenological analysis and then a commitment, the actual investment in the stock, the actual going through with it to see it come through. And if you don't do that, well, then you can't have meaning in the same way you can't make money on a stock unless you put money on it and risk the money on the stock, right? Meaning yeah. has to come with that risk. And then simply one's phenomenology is basically their research of the stock. In, a, in the way that people read earnings reports to research a stock in a company, your phenomenology is your research material for the portfolio of your possible meaning and belonging that you can, in, that you can invest in. But you have to think about it that way Otherwise, you're just kind of sitting around waiting for it to happen. Wait, it, mm. It's not. It's not. Well, again, if you existed in a pure Christian society and the external world could give you the Christian role that then you do and it was given to you externally, maybe there'd be a chance of that. But the risk of that is Nazism. The risk of that is closed mindedness and totalitarianism. Right. If you don't want those risks, which there's good reason not to want, because World War Three doesn't sound appealing to me. Well, the precondition for avoiding those terrors is to learn to think in the way that is being so described, according to this financial epistemology and strategizing. But that's what we have to do. And that's what we have to employ using the material of our own phenomenological experience. Phenomenal. Um, wow. Thank you. Thank you again for, for another amazing conversation. Well, I always enjoy it. Yeah, that was it, it always blows me away. And I always feel like I'm at my edge and like I'm being pushed intellectually in these in these conversations, which is it, which is a good feeling. Feels good to to really sit with these complex ideas into into um the frames that you bring to these things that I'm thinking about are always so different. They're always so getting at the same things, but using different language and almost like from a different angle, which I really appreciate. And yeah, I just want to say, yeah, thank you again for uh, recording the podcast and yeah, uh, hopefully many more to come. Well, I enjoy it very much. This, this is a very, very important topic and I'm happy to speak about it uh, anytime on the mm. particular identification of the experiences of which have the highest probability to be the things that if you commit to can generate the meaning and belonging. And because I think actually all of that has a lot to do with relationships as well that people struggle with, like love, 
Um, and and community and, and things like that, right? I think it is all sort of connected and bringing in a risk portfolio and then a commitment portfolio, you know, way of thinking like you're bringing to the table and actually going through and how that changes your way of thinking and how that changes your structuring in the world. That is all an utterly, utterly, utterly necessary piece of the puzzle. And if it's um, and if it's left out, the puzzle can't be finished. So I appreciate mm. the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. And likewise, um, wish I had more time to read all of these amazing pieces you're putting out, but I, I get a couple here and there and I get uh, <laughs> as much as I can. Um, amazing. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it, Ethan Nelson. Thank you, sir. You have a good evening, sir. I've enjoyed it very much. Best to you, sir. Thank you.